0: part 7 chapter 1 of the life of florence nightingale volume 2 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the life of florence nightingale volume 2 by edward tiyes cook chapter 1 out of office literary work 1872 to 1874 work of later years eighteen seventy two to nineteen ten i ask no heaven till earth be thine nor glory crown while work of mine remaineth here when earth shall shine among the stars her sins wiped out her captives free her voice a music unto thee for crown new work give thou to me lord here am i i found this in an intensely evangelical baptist american's work a lecture he had delivered upon me now these lines appear to me exactly true and an extraordinary advance in the way of truth on english evangelicalism which banishes work like sin from heaven and has no idea that heaven is to be made out of earth by us florence nightingale from a letter to her father eighteen sixty nine chapter one i am glad that you have given up drudgery for public offices the position which you held was always a precarious one because dependent on temples of friendship and the good will of the minister i am glad that you have a straightforward work to do now in which you are dependent on yourself i want you to have a new life and interest the way of influencing mankind by ideas is the more excellent way benjamin jowett letters to miss nightingale eighteen seventy one eighteen seventy two something which you said to me on sunday has rather disquieted me and i hope that you will allow me to remonstrate with you about it you said that you were going to ask permission as a patient to st thomas's hospital do not do this one because it is eccentric and we cannot strengthen our lives by eccentricity two because you will not be a patient but a kind of directress to the institution viewed with great alarm by the doctors three when a person is engaged in a great work i do not think the expense of living is much to be considered the only thing is that you should live in such a way that you can do your work best for i would not oppose you living at less expense if you wish though so i think that a matter of no moment but i would live independently v do you mean really to live as a patient it will kill you i do not add the annoyance to your father of a step which he can never be made to understand i look at the matter solely from the point of view of your own work I have cared about you for many years and though i have little hope of prevailing with you i would ask you not to set aside these reasons without consideration so mr jowett wrote to miss nightingale on june twenty two eighteen seventy two i am flattered to hear he wrote a little later july eleventh that you have disregarded duty and conscience for my sake i hope that you will never in future obey a conscience which tells you to kill yourself will you try to hope and be at peace and just ask of god time to complete your work you who have done so much for others ought sometimes to reflect that you have had a great blessing and happiness the intention which miss nightingale had formed and from which mr jowett dissuaded her was not of passing fancy it was in accord with a deep-seated conviction as may be seen from a document already quoted nor though she listened to mr jowett's advice did she entirely abandon her purpose later in the year she still thought of giving up her pleasant house in south street and she set various friends to report upon furnished apartments in the immediate neighbourhood of st thomas's hospital they could not find anything that seemed suitable and she gave up the idea but as she could not go to st thomas's she contrived as we shall hear in a later chapter that st thomas's should come to her she devoted herself from this time more largely than heretofore to the detailed supervision of the nightingale school both in what she did and in what she now left undone the year eighteen seventy two marks a new departure in her life it is explained by a summary entry in her diary this year i go out of office miss nightingale had been in office as she called it continuously since her departure for scutari in october eighteen fifty four she had been closely employed that is to say sometimes officially sometimes unofficially upon the administrative work of various departments in matters pertaining to her special interests with the advent of mr gladstone to power in eighteen sixty eight her work in this sort had much diminished her friend captain galton had gone from the war office she occasionally intervened in minor matters as on one occasion with when her friend mr Low, agreed with mr cardwell to accept her view about a certain pension to the widow of an officer and there were other cases of the kind as when she obtained an attentive hearing from mr bruce home secretary for a memorandum which she submitted on the working of the contagious diseases act but her constant employment in connection with the war office was over. She had argued with herself in some meditations during 1871 whether she ought to make a bid, as it were, for office again. She could still exercise a certain official influence, she thought, if she chose to seek out ministers and ask them to call upon her but the political times were out of joint she argued on the other side so far as her special aptitudes were concerned the strength of mr gladstone's government was thrown into political reform not into administration the administration of the departments as she was not alone in thinking was defective there are many letters of this period in which she contrasts the days of peel and sidney herbert with those of gladstone or disraeli but i must stop she says in one of them or you will say that i am aping southey who said you know that the last ministry was so bad that nothing could be worse except the present but coleridge differed from him for he thought the present ministry so bad that nothing could be worse except the last at any rate what miss nightingale cared for and was fitted for she said to herself was only administration in the years when she was in office she had not only written reports she had been able to organize the mechanism for carrying them out now that administration was going as she thought to the dogs it was time for her to be out of office that such was the lot appointed to her was borne in by something that happened early in eighteen seventy two in february lord mayo was assassinated a personal grief to miss nightingale and a great blow she said to her cause and lord northbrook was appointed to succeed him as governor-general miss nightingale was personally acquainted with lord northbrook who had been a friend as also for a time a colleague of Sidney herbert but he left for india without coming to see her you have worked for eternity wrote mr jowett april three to whom she had reported the new viceroy's neglect why should you be troubled at the governor-general not coming to see you as he most certainly ought to have done put not your trust in princes or in princesses or in the war office or in the india office all that sort of thing necessarily rests on a sandy foundation I wonder that you have been able to carry on so long with them. Lord Northbrook was friendly, nevertheless, as appears from his reply, when she wrote and asked him to see Mr. Clark, the sanitary and civil engineer. Lord Northbrook to Miss Nightingale, Calcutta, January three, eighteen seventy-three. I had great pleasure in seeing Mr. Clark, for I had seen his works at Barrack poor and knew of the great results which so far as the statistics up to the present time can be said to prove them have followed from the supply of pure water to calcutta i hope soon to see his drainage works at the salt lakes and i have got the particulars of his plan for catch-water roofs for military buildings which i will look at carefully as soon as i can at present i am a little overwhelmed with business which has been accumulating during my tour you may be assured of two things that i fully understand the importance of pure water for the soldiers and that i shall always receive with pleasure and consider with attention any suggestions which you may kindly give me both on your own account and because you were so much associated on these matters with my old master lord herbert yours very sincerely northbrook part two the question had become instant thereupon what was she to do next mr jowett's letters to her at this time as also her own private notes show that she was in a mood of great depression due in part to much physical weakness and suffering but in part also to unsettlement in her plan of life she knew not exactly what to be at she saw before her as she wrote no consecutive path growing out of one's own deeds but only a succession of disjointed lives and unconnected events never she wrote again has god let me feel weariness of active life but only anxiety to get on now in old age i never wish to be relieved from new work but only to have it to do with what zeal she threw herself into fuller work for the nightingale school at st thomas's we shall hear but that was not enough she could not see nurses and write to nurses all day long though indeed she devoted to such duties as many hours as some people would consider a sufficient day's work and besides she was now spending a large part of the year with her father or mother in the country she needed some recreation and the only recreation she ever found was in change of work she sought no glory crown over folded hands mr jowett seized the occasion to repeat his advice that she should find recreation in literary work now that she meant to free herself from official drudgery let her gain permanent influence by writing books or essays i think he said that you seem to me to have more ideas than any one whom i know and again december fourteenth eighteen seventy one you have many original thoughts but you either insert them in blue books or cast them before swine that is me and i sometimes insert them in sermons you should have a more consecutive way of going on she recalled too advice and remonstrances which she had received from mr mill in eighteen sixty seven the national society for Woman's suffrage was founded mill had asked her to join it and she had at first refused john stuart mill to miss nightingale blackheath park august ninth eighteen sixty seven as i know how fully you appreciate a great many of the evil effects produced upon the character of women and operating to the destruction of their own and others happiness by the existing state of opinion and as you have done me the honour to express some regard for my opinion on these subjects i should not like to abstain from mentioning the formation of a society aimed in my opinion at the very root of all the evils you deplore and have passed your life in combating there are a great number of people particularly women who from want of the habit of reflecting on politics are quite incapable of realizing the enormous power of politics that is to say of legislation to confer happiness and also to influence the opinion and the moral nature of the governed as i am convinced that this power is by far the greatest that it is possible to wield for human happiness i can neither approve of women who decline the responsibility of wielding it nor of men who would shut out women from the right to wield it until women do wield it to the best of their ability little or great and that in a direct open manner i am convinced that the evils of which i know you to be peculiarly aware can never be satisfactorily dealt with and this conviction must be my apology for troubling you miss nightingale to john stuart mill thirty five south street august eleventh eighteen sixty seven i can't tell you how much pleased i was nor how grateful i feel that you should take the trouble to write to me and if i ill-naturedly answer your question by asking one it is because i have scarcely any one who can give me as my dear friend mr clough long since dead said a considered opinion that women should have the suffrage i think no one can be more deeply convinced than i it is so important for a woman to be a person as you say and i think i see this most strongly in married life if the woman is not a person it does almost infinite harm even to her husband and the harm is greatest when the man is a very clever man and the woman is a very clever woman but it will be years before you obtain the suffrage for women and in the meantime there are evils which press much more hardly on women than the want of the suffrage and will not this when obtained put women in opposition to those who withhold these rights from them so as to retard still further the legislation which is necessary to put them in possession of their rights I ask humbly and i am afraid you will laugh at me could not the existing disabilities as to property and influence of women be swept away by the legislature as it stands at present and equal responsibilities be given as they ought to be to both men and women i do not like to take up your time with giving instances redressable by legislation in which my experience tells me that women and especially poor and married women are most hardly pressed upon now no matron serving on a large scale as i have done and with the smallest care for her nurses can be unaware of these till a married woman can be in possession of her own property there can be no love or justice but there are many other evils as i need not tell you is it possible that if woman suffrage is agitated as a means of removing these evils the effect may be to prolong their existence is it not the case that at present there is no opposition between the two elements of the nation but that if both had equal political power there is a probability that the social reforms required might become matter of political partisanship and so the weaker go to the wall i can scarcely expect that you will have time to answer my humble questions as to my being on the society you mention you know there is scarcely anything which if you were to tell me that it is right politically i would not do but i have no time it is fourteen years this very day that i entered upon work which has never left me ten minutes leisure not even to be ill and i am obliged never to give my name where i cannot give my work if you will not think me egotistical i will say why i have kept off the stage of these things in the years that i have passed in government offices i have never felt the want of a vote because if i had been a borough returning two members to parliament i should have had less administrative influence and i have thought that i could work better for others off the stage than on it added to which i am an incurable invalid entirely a prisoner to my room but i entirely agree if i may be allowed to agree with so great an authority that women's political power should be direct and open not indirect and i ought to ask your pardon for occupying you for one single moment with my own personal situation as you have had the kindness to let me address you, I cannot help putting in one more word on a subject very near my heart, the India Sanitary Service. I have worked very hard at this for six years, and during all those years my great wish has been, would it be possible to ask Mr. Mill for his help and influence, but you were so busy. Pray, believe me, dear sir, ever your faithful servant, Florence Nightingale." mr mill found time for a considered opinion of great elaboration and weight it has been printed elsewhere with his reply to miss nightingale's humble but argumentative questions we are not here concerned though she never took any prominent part in the movement for female suffrage she joined the society in eighteen sixty eight allowed her name to be placed on the general committee in eighteen seventy one was an annual subscriber to its funds and in eighteen seventy eight sent an expression of her opinion on the subject for publication it was however mr mill's remarks upon her personal situation that now in eighteen seventy two came back to her if he had said you prefer to do your work rather by moving the hidden springs than by allowing yourself to be known to the world as doing what you really do it is not for me to make any observations on this preference inasmuch as i am bound to presume that you have good reasons for it other than to say that i much regret that this preference is so very general among women she ought not he went on to suggest to hide her good deeds and finally I feel, he wrote, some hesitation in saying to you what I think of the responsibility that lies upon each one of us to stand steadfastly, and with all the boldness and all the humility that a deep sense of duty can inspire, by what the experience of life and an honest use of our own intelligence has taught us to be the truth to some of this expostulation she had at the time a conclusive rejoinder she could not write to the times and say be it known that i suggested such and such a dispatch to a secretary of state and am corresponding in such and such a sense with the governor-general but if she were out of office the plea for seclusion behind the scenes failed nor was it ever perhaps of much cogency in relation to her views on religious and social matters now that she had gone out of office was it not her duty to come into the open with her pen part three the first literary task which miss nightingale set herself under this impulse took the form of a series of magazine articles in which she hoped to embody the leading ideas contained in the voluminous suggestions for thought already described during the ten years and more that i have known you wrote mr jowett october thirty one eighteen seventy two you have repeated to me the expression character of god about one thousand times but i can't say that i have any clear idea of what you mean why did she not try and explain in an earlier letter february twenty eighth eighteen seventy one mr jowett had suggested the form of short papers or essays she now wrote three of them of which the first two were published entitled respectively a note of interrogation a sub-note of interrogation what will our religion be in nineteen ninety nine and on what government night will mr lowe bring out our new moral budget another subnote of interrogation in the first paper miss nightingale in a questioning and elusive style defined her conception of god as a god of law whose character may be learnt from social and moral science and defended such a conception against some current ideas of christian churches on the one side and against the too cold and impersonal creed as she thought of positivism on the other the affinity of her doctrine at some points with the creed of positivism is obvious but she held as an axiom that the existence of law implied a lawgiver and it is a very different thing she wrote elsewhere fighting against evil for our own sakes or fighting for the sake of the lawgiver who arms us fighting with or without a commander the scope of the second paper is harder to describe for it throws out a large number of criticisms and suggestions on life morals and philosophy in no very closely related order the general idea however is that the purification of religion requires not destructive criticism but reconstruction and a reordering of modern life on the lines of social service in which latter connection miss nightingale paid a glowing tribute to the pioneer of east-end settlers these two papers though they attempt to cover too much ground in a small space abound in happy things by the way we are told for instance that matthew arnold's literature and dogma is marred by a tendency not to fight like a man but to scratch like a cat the doctrine of eternal punishment is criticised in the words of the pauper who said to his nurse after seeing the chaplain it does seem hard to have suffered so much here only to go to everlasting torments hereafter the creed of some contented politicians is hit off by saying that they talk of the masses as if they were Silurian strata. The third of Miss Nightingale's papers is the hardest to describe because it is the most crowded of the series. Its practical purpose may be said in the language of later politics to be a plea for social reform. There must be a chancellor of the exchequer and a budget for morality and crime as for finance her conception of social and moral science as an almost statistical study is glanced at and the controversy between free-will and necessity is disposed of by the way miss nightingale sent her papers successively to mr Froude, he was delighted with the first and with the second your second note he said is even more pregnant than the first i cannot tell how sanitary with disordered intellects the effects of such papers will be they appeared in fraser's magazine for may and july eighteen seventy three carlyle was not so favourably impressed miss nightingale's second paper he said was like a lost lamb bleeding on the mountain mr froude's criticism on the third was that it lacked focusing the whole art of getting culinary fire out of intellectual sunlight depends on that the third article accordingly was not printed miss nightingale did not relish carlyle's remark and her equanimity was perhaps not restored by the domestic assurance that florence's mistake had been in not submitting the manuscript to her sister's revision one of the best things in the paper which was not published was a postscript. The first article had been widely noticed in the pulpit and the press, and had brought to the author many letters, some sympathetic as from Mr. Edward Maitland, others sorrowfully critical. There were those who promised to pray for her conversion daily, and invited her to join them in that exercise. They had not read the article, it seemed, but only a review of it and among the printed critiques was one which began my knowledge of the scope of this paper is derived from the report of a discourse upon it in her proposed postscript miss nightingale took this opportunity of thanking unknown friends for their sympathy and suggestions and still more unknown friend enemies for their criticisms but yet more should I have thanked the latter had their criticisms been on my poor little article in its rough state the original cow and snuffers and not on seeing the extract of a criticism of an extract of my article certainly a new art must have arisen in my elderly age out magazining magazining and i hereby confidentially inform the shade of mr Fraser that he may on application to me see columns closely printed columns of small but cruel print upon a paper which the writers state that they have not read what read a paper which we are going to review yes mr Fraser, this is what magazining has come to articles and not even written on original works even if that work be only an article but on a review of an article and not even upon that but upon a review of a review of an extract of an article or sometimes upon an extract of a sermon upon an extract of a review of an article i ought to feel flattered i try to feel flattered but mr Fraser is life long enough for this is this the way to human progress and but as this will not be read by my unknown critics i come to a stop the practice which miss nightingale thus satirized has not become less frequent in later days when the newspapers supply their readers not with political speeches but with opinions based on summaries of them and when what are called educational handbooks aim at giving the student the power of passing a critical judgment upon authors Without the necessity of reading them, End of Part Seven, Chapter One, Parts One, Two, and Three.